0: Father, we ask tonight as we continue in the book of Job that You'd open our hearts and minds to the Word here. And that You would continue, Lord, to teach us, draw us through this season, and prepare us for whatever comes ahead. And in all this, we're praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, bless our time in Your Word tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, tonight we leave the prologue of the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2, with all its satanic subterfuge and divine design. We leave the prologue and we enter into the dialogue. And as we get into it, something I'd like to point out, it begins with seven days, seven full days of silence. Job's friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, come and they sit with him. And we're going to go back, actually one more time, to chapter 2 on Sunday morning. We're going to look a little bit at And a friend indeed. And truly, how does a friend bring comfort? You'll see a little bit of how not to do it tonight. But one of the things they do well when they first start out is these three guys, they come and they sit with Job. They don't pour out words and advice and counsel. They just sit with him for seven days in silence. Partially probably because they don't know what to say. Partially because there is compassion in presence. There is comfort just in being with somebody. As a side note, if you know someone who's hurting and you haven't contacted them because you don't know what to say, don't worry about what to say. Just being there is huge. I think I said last week or, or recently that if you're just there, they're not going to remember your words, but they will remember your presence. So these three friends, they come and they sit with Job and they comfort him with their presence and all is quiet and until Job speaks, beginning in chapter 3. And as Job speaks, what we see happen is we are opened into this dialogue, and it is we are treated to a long dialogue. 38 chapters, drawn out, sometimes contentious, waxing poetic. These three men go back and forth, Job will speak, and then... And then we have Eliphaz speak, and then Job responds, and then Bildad, and then Job again, and then Zophar, and then it all starts over. You're going to get three rounds of three speeches each for Eliphaz and Bildad with Job rebutting in between. And then two speeches in, in two rounds from Zophar. And all this is intermingled again with Job's replies and consternation and frustration, but it's chapter after chapter after chapter of dialogue, discourse, and diatribe. I've shared with you, and I probably shouldn't bring this up again, but I will. My mother is reading through the Bible in a year, doing the one-year Bible, and she's called me a few times, just frustrated, and one of those times recently was in the book of Job. Rick, this is such a downer. And it's so long. And I don't get it. And it just goes on and on. And she's right. It's 38 chapters. Now, I'm not trying to discourage you from being here on Wednesday nights for the next few weeks. (laughs) But you need to understand, it does go on and on. And what's interesting to me is after it's all said and done, it finally concludes with the Lord's grand response and restoration. It has a wonderful ending to the story. But some people get weary of it all. And isn't that just the way of suffering? If you think about the way we get hit, especially in a longer-term situation of sorrow or pain or suffering, it often begins in a flurry of drama. A relative dies, and for the next three or four days or week, you're pulling things together, and you're trying to make sense of it all, but you're also trying to get the funeral arrangements taken care of, and for about a week there, it's just a lot of activity. It's painful, but it's dynamic, because so much is going on. And then after the funeral, it quiets down, And then you enter into the season of sorrow. Then the pain settles in. And the friends stop calling. And it seems to go on and on and on. It'll end, especially for people of faith, often with joy and wonderful resolution, is finally you come to that point where you recognize what God was doing and he brings healing or he brings restoration. But in the middle of that flurry of drama at the outset, as we see in the book of Job, and the end point where God comes in and brings healing, there is this season of sorrow. And so the book of Job is like life. And the Bible is like life, not pulling any punches. And so that's what we enter into now, this this long season. And I want to encourage you to hold fast, because like the book of Job itself, if you are in a long season of suffering or affliction, there is reason for it. It's in the long seasons, even in the still silence of God, that He is forming a greater faith than you. And it's in those long seasons that He is bringing about a deeper comfort possibly than you ever knew before where He's building and preparing for the outpouring of great blessing. Sometimes that season can be long. Well, the dialogue begins as Job in the presence of all of his friends, his three buddies here, finally bursts open the floodgates of his despair. Afterward, verse 1, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said... Let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said a boy is conceived. Now that's interesting. You can jot down a few things. We're going to listen to Job and we're going to listen to Eliphaz tonight. Three things to note here. Three or four about Job. First thing he does is he reviles his origin. He opens his mouth and, and he doesn't talk about the current situation, the current pain, the current struggle. He goes all the way back. Now, Here's a positive about Job. He never reviles the Lord. He never curses the Lord. Not once. He doesn't go after the Lord. But he does curse the day of his birth. In fact, he curses his very existence. He reviles his origin. He doesn't just go back to his birthday as we see there in verse 3, let the day perish on which I was to be born. He goes further back to the night of his conception. Let that night perish. May that night never have happened. Why would Job bypass the day of his birth and go nine months earlier to the night of his conception? I'll tell you why. It's because that's when his life began. Life does not begin on the day of our birth. Life begins in the moment, the instant of our conception. Now, watch this. This word here that he uses, he says, "...let the night which said, a boy is conceived..." Let that perish. "...a boy is conceived..." The word there in the Hebrew for boy is sometimes translated in some Bibles, man-child. Which, Laura, I remember you using that phrase for your sons. He's my man-child. I love that. But even man-child doesn't pick up the essence of the word. The word in the Hebrew is geber. G-E-B-E-R, if you make a transliteration, geber. And it literally means man. So what Job is saying is this was the night in which a man was conceived. But not just any man. The word geber in the Hebrew is very specific. It's different than all other words for man in the Bible. You may be familiar with some of those words. Adam, Adam, just means man. And it tends to be used in reference to mankind when you're reading in the Scriptures. And the word Adam is used in the Hebrew, talking often about mankind. If you're just talking about a particular man, the word ish is used. For woman, isha. For man, ish. Or sometimes enosh is used, enosh simply meaning mortal. But the word geber literally means a man full grown at the height of his strength. Now why would Job use a word like that about the moment of his conception, the night a man in full strength was conceived? Because what happened on the night of Job's conception, as with yours, as with mine, was far more than the creation of a blob of tissue. What happened in that moment... Now, the abortionist claims that the union of seed and egg yields nothing more than an indiscriminate mass that eventually grows into something, and then when it's born, becomes human. Not so, according to Job. No, in the moment of his conception, when seed and egg met, he was a man. Everything was contained there, and we know... Well, science has figured out, finally, that everything is already present there for Job to be called a man. The DNA strand already had all the information necessary for that man to come from the union of egg and seed. And the Bible is clear about this. Jeremiah 1.5, the Lord is speaking to the prophet, and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. Psalm 139.13 says, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, science will depersonalize the moment of conception, will depersonalize brand new life. They call it a zygote. I always thought it was a great name. Zygote. In fact, if I had it to do over, I might name one of my sons Zygote, just for fun. But that's the scientific name for it. Does that even sound human? It sounds like something that comes from the planet Zygar. You know, I'm a Zygo from Zygar. You know, I, I, it's strange to me why we do these types of things. When the reality is that at conception, life has that complete DNA mapping of a man at the height of his strength, Geber. So I think the word is completely appropriate and very well chosen by Job. He says in verse 5, Or verse 4 going on. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. All of these unique words for night and darkness. Several of them unique only to the book of Job. In this lament, what Job is saying is, man, out of sight, out of mind. Let that day be forgotten. Let that day be erased. He's pulling a George Bailey. If you're familiar with A Wonderful Life, what he's saying is, I wish I'd never been born. (laughs) That's the whole issue for Job. If, If my existence had never happened, that's what I want. Job never gets suicidal, by the way. In all of his pain, he never seeks to take his life. He just wishes he never existed at all. He never says, boy, if I could just take my life. Never. But he does wish he had never been born. And in verse 7 he says, Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Now, apparently... It's been known for a long time that sailors can curse. You Navy guys, no offense. But the whole point, there's a context here of verse 8. He says, those who curse it, who curse the day who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. He's talking about those who curse the sea. Those who are on ships who, who would curse the, the, the animals of the deep. He's calling on anybody who curses things of darkness to curse the day of his birth as though it were utter darkness, that it never really happened. He just wants it gone. Interesting. He goes on. And again, remember, He is pouring out of His grief. He is speaking out of His pain. And in verse 9 He says, Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light, but have none. And let it not see the breaking dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me and why the breast that I should suck for now I would have lain down and been quiet oh I would have slept then I would have been at rest and now he's talking about death had he just died at birth he would have had rest He goes on and says in verse 14, "...with kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver, or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be..." I know this is graphic, but gang, it's graphic when you're speaking out of your pain. He says, "...as infants that never saw light, there the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster." The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master, and as Job goes on, what he's doing here now is Job is romanticizing death. First thing he does is revile his birth, or his origin. Now he romanticizes death. That's what he's doing as he goes through and he names all these different people. You might get lost in the listing, he he says kings and counselors and and princes and infants and the wicked and the weary and prisoners and small and great and slave and all these kind of different people from different walks of life. What is Job doing here? Well, as he romanticizes death in his mind, he's expressing what you could call the democracy of death. Death is democratic. It is of the people. It is by the people. And it is for the people. And it is not escaped by anyone other than those who happen to be alive at His coming who won't at that point taste death. Aside from that, everybody faces it. Job is thinking, all people die, why can't I? Again, he's not suicidal because he's not making a plan to take his life. He's just wishing it would be taken. He's just wishing, actually wishing it had happened back when he was first born. that He just died. He benches his pain here, and he does something that people often do when they are weary of sorrow and suffering. They romanticize death. Oh, if only I could just be dead. As though death was this lovely long winter's nap. My favorite part of the poem. You know, the night before Christmas. Mama and her kerchief and I and my cap had settled our brains for a long winter's nap. Oh, for a long winter's nap. There are many afternoons when I think it's time for a long winter's (laughs) nap. It'd be great. And when you're in that place, and perhaps you've been there, where the sorrow is so heavy and so intense, you just think, if I just died I could have rest, I could have peace, a state of blissful, dreamless sleep. My friends, what Job is thinking about death is completely erroneous. It's biblically untrue. In fact, several false doctrines have emanated from the misapplication of the book of Job, and this is one of them. I'll point a few out as we go through. False doctrines that people will cling to. Jehovah's Witnesses take this passage and they use it as a proof text for soul sleep. They say, see? Job is talking about just the longing for death, going the way of death, the peace, the quiet, the calm. It's sleep. That's what happens when you die. The body just sleeps until then the resurrection happens. The body does itself appear to sleep. The empty shell, once the spirit of of man, spirit of woman, is left. But it sleeps in the same way that if you're driving through maybe an old backcountry road and you see an empty house that is but a shell of the lively place that it once was. No one living there. No one's home. The lights aren't even coming on. The house is sleeping. Dead. Empty. Well, that's what our bodies are when we die. They appear to sleep. But the Bible indicates the spirit is alive and well. The spirit alive and well. The body is just a shell. We have some shells in a little bowl in our bathroom that Naomi um, is very interested in. And why she's so interested in it is I told her one, one day that animals used to live in those shells. Really? And every night at brushing your teeth time, she wants me to tell her the story about the hermit crab that went from the little shell to the bigger shell to the bigger shell and then moved on. She loves that story. I think she's just trying to prolong bedtime, but that's another issue for Naomi. But the body is that. It's a shell. And yet the spirit, and Scripture's absolutely clear on this one. We shouldn't have to guess what happens when we die. 2 Corinthians 5.6, Paul says, To be at home in the body is to be absent from the Lord. What does that mean? Well, that means if you're in your body, if your spirit's here, you're not with the Lord. However, he says, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Not in the dirt. Big difference. It's not soul sleep. The moment you die instantaneously, your spirit, according to Scripture, is with the Lord. In the presence of the Lord. That is, if you die in the Lord. Jesus said, Luke 23, 43, He said, to the thief on the cross hanging there beside him, you remember what he said? Today you will be with me in paradise. Not, you know, in two thousand years when everything is is you know all taken care of, and in the middle of one of Rick's Wednesday night messages, I rapture the body. Be cool. <laughs> Not then, but now. Today. You're gonna die, but today, my friend, we're going to paradise together. I'm taking you with me. After his death, and I can show you this in other places, Jesus shut down the waiting for the spirits of those who died in faith. Prior to his death, well, he tells us, you may remember the the, uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus, how Jesus describes Hades or Sheol he really illuminates something that even the Jewish people didn't really understand before and that's when you die there was a place of paradise and there was a place of torment and there was a chasm in between and if you died in faith you went to the paradise kind of a holding place because you couldn't go to the presence of the Lord why not? Jesus hadn't died yet if you died outside of faith you were in the place of torment however when Jesus died we are told that he led captivity captive he led captive a host of captives Effectively, and that's Ephesians chapter 4, shutting down the paradise side of Hades, all those who had died in faith, in the Lord, trusting the Lord, well now the sacrifice is paid, and so now Jesus goes down, grabs them and with them, takes them with Him, not the bodies, but the spirits. I can give you more proof of this but I'll get kind of off on a tangent. If you want to look up 1 Thessalonians 4, the passage we've talked about, 16 through 18, right in there, talking about the rapture of the church, it's very interesting. It says God will bring with Him those who died in Christ Jesus. But it also says the dead in Christ will rise. God will bring with Him the dead in Christ will rise. Well, which is it? God will bring the spirits of those who died in faith with Him. The dead is the word necros, or corpses, will rise. And in that moment, the glorification of the body and the spirit happens instantaneously in the blink of an eye. Bottom line, if you die in faith today, your spirit is at home with the Lord. And that's what Job didn't understand. He thought, I just died in sleep. No, Job. No. It's not soul sleep. It's wrong doctrine. Jehovah's Witnesses got it wrong. And I'll tell you something, despair is a bad place from which to develop doctrine. In fact, despair is a bad place from which to develop any life plan. Okay, If you're in a place of depression or in a pit or you're upset or you're discouraged, that's not a place to try and make life decisions. That's a place just to hang on to Jesus. You make your life decisions when you're thinking clearly and when the clouds have lifted, but not in the place that Job is in. He's wrong in his statements here. He's not sinful, by the way. He's not sinning. He's just inaccurate. He just doesn't understand. I-, I love how the Lord sets him straight. He can skip all the way to the end of the book, uh, or close to it, chapter 38, when the Lord begins to speak to Job, and He says in verse 2 of Job 38, "...who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge?" He begins to say, Job, you're talking about stuff you don't get. You don't even know what you're talking about. Down in verse 17 of Job 38, he says, Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? You're speaking about things you don't know, Job. So as he romanticizes death, he doesn't understand death. Speaking of things you don't know, we easily do the same thing when we're hurting. We begin to speak of things we don't know. So Job continues his lament. Verse 20, Why is light given to him who suffers, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, which means he can't stomach anything, and my cries pour out like water, For what I fear comes upon me. What I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. And I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. Third thing that we see happening here with Job. He reviles his origin. He romanticizes death. And now he reveals his dread. He reveals his dread. Did you catch that self-fulfilling prophecy in verse 25? For what I fear comes or has come upon me. What I dread befalls me. For all of his many blessings, his riches, his wealth, all the good in his life, Job, like so many people who are well off, feared, dreaded the loss of them. And now it's happened. He says, what's happened to me is what I have feared. I was afraid of this. Ironic that wealth, the poor dream of gaining it, and the rich have nightmares about losing it. Either way, it's not a good thing. It can be used for the Lord, it can be used in your life, but man, once it gets a hold of you, Job dreaded losing it. He feared this. And now that it's happened, he exposes, he reveals it to us. I was afraid of this. I knew this have you ever talked to someone who was in a hard time and that's what they said? I knew this was gonna happen. I could have told you. You know, it sounds superstitious there's another doctrine of despair that comes out of this part of Job. It's a doctrine that would say, be careful what you fear, because it just might happen to you. Now again, that sounds like superstition, and it is, but it's also a doctrine professed by those who would say, and I quote, only speak the positive confession. Avoid negative words because they just might come true. It's superstitious nonsense, but it comes right. It's the mantra of the Word of Faith camp. If you speak the positive, if you name it and claim it, it will be yours. Riches and wealth and glory, if you stay on the positive, the positive confession. But if you happen to speak the negative, (laughs) that's why you have your problems. You haven't been praying positively enough. You haven't had enough faith. That's why all this has come down upon you. And I like what uh, John Corson says about this. He says, that's not God our Father, that's the Godfather. And it's a wrong perspective. God is not waiting to zing you in your moments of fear and doubt. He's not waiting to squash you under the thumb. He's not waiting for you to express that one time, oh, I slipped and I expressed... You know, like Linus on It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown? When he says, If the Great Pumpkin comes, I'll put in a good word for you. <gasps> I said, If. I meant, When he comes. One little slip up like that, and he'll pass you by. You know? I've seen it a few times. God is not waiting to take you out because you happen to have a moment of faithlessness. He knows we're faithless, but He is faithful. He knows we're frail. He knows we're going to have doubts crop up and we're going to speak them out. He understands that. It doesn't frighten him. There's nothing wrong with voicing your fears. Nothing wrong with lifting your frailties up to the Father. Psalm 103, verse 10 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor awarded us according to our iniquities. Verse 14 of that psalm, He himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. How do I avoid the fear of loss in my life? Because Job obviously had this for years. Now that it's happened, he's just saying, see, I was afraid of this. How do we live life not fearing that we're going to lose the things that we have? The answer is very simple. Be content. Just be content. Be content with where you are, with what you do have. If it's a lot, praise God, be content. If it's a little, praise God, be content with whatever He decides to give you. I want to read this to you. You can flip there if you want. First Timothy chapter 6. Paul is writing to Timothy and he, he says these words. Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy and verse 3. Paul says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited, (laughs) and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arrive envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Who suppose, watch this, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain? Prosperity Gospel. Those who suppose godliness is a means of gain. The more righteous I am, the more I get. Which is a fallacy that the book of Job proves false. He goes on and he says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. What did Job say? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I go back. Paul says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. You got a roof over your heads tonight, everyone? Praise God. Did you have something to eat today? Hallelujah. Be content. But those who want to get rich... And notice, this is not a passage dealing with those who are rich. I always thought it was. That really caught me today. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it, these are not those who have it, these are those who want it. Some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You pursue those things. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom and... All these things will be added unto you. I'll take care of the rest. I'll give you what I know you need, what I know you can handle, what I know is important for you to have. You just seek the kingdom. And be content. Be content. Well, back in the book of Job, he finishes out his lament there at the end of chapter 3, and Eliphaz picks up the microphone. Eliphaz, his friend, who has sat quietly, patiently for seven days, the best thing Eliphaz does. <laughs> Verse 1, chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Timonite answered. And Timon probably is Saudi Arabia. So this guy traveled quite a distance to be here with Job. You know, before we slam into these guys, we need to recognize all three of these guys are, they really care about Job. They really do. They're there because they care. They just don't know what to say. Verse 1. Eliphaz the Temanite answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. Talking about what a great guy Job has been in the past for other people. Verse 5, But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. And I'm reminded of the verse, the proverb that says, Proverbs 17, 29, 28, even a fool, if he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. And these three friends would have done well to keep their thoughts to themselves. But here they are, in the presence of a friend in pain, and they don't know what to do, so they just start to talk. I know none of you have ever done that. What they do is they begin to spout off opinion in Eliphaz, number one. Eliphaz is at first observational. He's going to express, he's going to share with Job what he sees going on here in his great wisdom. Verse 6, Eliphaz goes on and says, Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? And by the way, no it's not. <laughs> my integrity is not my hope. Jesus Christ is my hope. Because if my integrity is my hope, I'm in trouble. He goes on and says, verse 7, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the upright? Destroyed. Eliphaz is now presenting another wrong doctrine which says your suffering must be your fault because those who are innocent do not suffer. Well, of course they do. Of course the innocent suffer. I mean, there's another way of looking at it. And that's nobody is innocent truly, so we all deserve what we get. But there are those who have suffered innocently that are not responsible for the pain and anguish that's been brought upon them. And Eliphaz should have known that. I know some of you are immediately thinking Jesus, and, that, and Jesus came after Eliphaz, so he couldn't have known. Yeah, but he could have known about Abel. First two brothers. What did Abel do wrong? Brought his offering to the Lord. And in his innocence... His blood ends up crying from the ground because his brother murders him. Abel didn't deserve that. In fact, Eliphaz, you're wrong. The innocents do suffer. And Jesus was the most innocent man of history who experienced the most suffering. He was pierced through for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him, the perfect innocent man. Verse 8, Eliphaz continues, According to what I have seen, his observations here, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Eliphaz is right. There is some truth in what he says from time to time. So we'll try and pick it out where we can find it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they come to an end. He says, the roaring of the lion, and the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The the old lion, literally verse 11, perishes for lack of prey, and the wealth of the lioness are scattered. And I shared before those five words for lion are all five unique to the book of Job, and there are five different words for lion, which is just an interesting side note. And this is all true enough, what he says here in these three verses, except it does not preclude the suffering of the innocent. In other words, this doesn't mean, as we talked about Sunday, that there are not afflictions without cause. There are people who suffer innocent of their suffering. But these metaphors here, talking about these lions, they are a direct slap in the face of Job. What Eliphaz is saying is, Job, this must be the result of your sin. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. By the way, the whelps of the lioness are scattered indicates his children. What happened to Job's children? Well, they're all dead. Eliphaz is a real sensitive guy. He's trying to paint a word picture here that maybe he thinks Job can understand about how he has brought his suffering on himself. So El- Eliphaz has been observational here, but then he he sees possibly that this isn't really getting through to Job. So he needs a little more weight behind what he's saying. So Eliphaz goes mystical. Watch this, verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it, Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face, the hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes, there was silence, then I heard a voice. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Has anyone ever come to you and said, I have a word from the Lord for you? God told me to tell you. Now, please understand, I believe the Lord does give us a word for each other. But I think we overuse that. I think honestly what we do as Christians, if we want to really put some weight behind something, we say, well, God told me to do this. Oh, huh, okay, well then we better do it. Because God told you. You know, it, It's like it, it spiritualizes it makes it a little heavier you know Theo, I've got to talk to you because God has something for you here brother you know well how do you how do you fight against that how do you deny that that God has sent you and often well-intended brothers or sisters in Christ will come to you in times of suffering with a mysterious word as if from the Lord and I just want to encourage you be sure it is a word from the Lord Two questions to ask when someone comes to you and and says, I I think I've heard from the Lord for you. And Les is great about this. He always says this. And this isn't one of the two questions. But he always says, test this. If you've talked to Les and he said, you know, I I think I'm getting something for you, but test this. See, there's wisdom in that. Just because Pastor Les says it. Just because Pastor Rick says it. Just because one of your Christian brothers and sisters say, I've been praying about this and I think what the Lord is saying is kaboom test it. How do I do that? Question number one, does it sound like Jesus? I mean, does it really sound like something Jesus would say? Paul said in Colossians 2.6, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted being built up in Him and established in your faith just as you were instructed overflowing with gratitude see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ that's the first thing I think does that sound like Jesus? someone comes and says I have a word from the Lord and it's judgmental and it's harsh and it brings more pain probably not from the Lord Because He doesn't tend to grind you down when you're already hurting. But if it's full of grace and compassion and truth, if, if you can find biblical support for it, perhaps that really is the Lord speaking. Does it sound like Jesus? And second question to ask, did Jesus tell me the same thing? Have you heard it from the Lord yourself? Do you have a confirmation yourself? I love what Chuck Smith says. He says if someone comes to me with a word for the Lord saying, "I have a word from God for you," I always say, "Well, thank you very much. Now I'm going to wait for God to confirm that." I'll wait till he tells me what you have told me and then I'll know for sure that it truly is from him. Walk with wisdom, gay. Okay? Test all things. Paul says, "Hold fast to that which is good and reject what's evil." It's pretty simple. Now there is some truth in what Eliphaz is saying. He says God is always right. And that's true. But his implication is, therefore, Job, you must be wrong, which isn't true. God is always right, but that doesn't mean that you're wrong and that's why you're suffering. There may be something else entirely going on, as we know from the prologue, Satan's on the attack. And it has nothing to do with the rightness or wrongness of Job. Verse 18. He puts no trust, even in his servants. Now Eliphaz is talking about God. He puts no trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. Between morning and evening they're broken in pieces, unobserved they perish forever. Is not their tin cord plucked up within them? They die yet without reason. Number three, Eliphaz becomes judgmental. Now Eliphaz has taken it upon himself, to say that God doesn't trust His own servants, doesn't trust His own angels, why then of course would He trust men who are just houses of clay? Eliphaz is demeaning the place of man. Let me tell you what God says about the place of man in Scripture. And this should be encouraging to you. Psalm 8, verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty, and you make him to rule over the works of your hands. This is fantastic. Now, I realize we're all sinners, and we all fall short of the glory of God. I realize we have all blown it. But you know what else is true? That God loves you and wants to lift you up out of that place of humility. That Even more than that, the Lord has desired, and this is mind-blowing to me, the Lord has desired to enter into a partnership with man. With you and me. We are houses of clay, but we are supposed to be vessels of His glory. Paul's correct take on these clay houses, he uses the, the similar phrase in 2 Corinthians 4, we're not houses of clay, says we're jars of clay. We're vessels of clay. 2 Corinthians 4.7 We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Eliphaz misrepresents a huge truth in the relationship of God to man. And that is this. God desires to trust us. Eliphaz says he doesn't trust his service, doesn't trust his angels, and he's not going to trust houses of clay either, humans. Not true. The Lord wants to trust you. He wants to entrust you with his spirit. He wants to fill these clay jars with his glory. For his purposes, he wants us aligned with him. He wants to come and build faith into our lives and fill our hearts with with Him to abide in us. I mean, this is incredible. This is how much God loves. He's not looking and saying, a bunch of filthy creatures. He's saying, what can I do to clean up and bring them into my presence and fill them with my spirit? God is, He's not like Allah, He is not like Zeus. He's not a God who stands aloof and judges and condemns and laughs us off as pitiable creatures. By the way, I I read this the other day. I think it's amazing. Do you know that Muslims, and especially you'll see this a lot in Saudi Arabia, if you look at homes, Muslim homes will often have very high walls built around the homes. you know why that is? It's because they believe Allah can't see through walls. And so they build the walls as high as they can so they can do filthy, degrading, horrible things in their own in the privacy of their own home and Allah won't know about it. Well, that's a powerful God. <laughs> I mean, can you see him on the other side of the wall going, Come on, guys, let me in, man? Come on. That's the Muslim view, you know? Because if Allah does see something that he shouldn't be done, he's on it. You might not get in at all. It just depends on how Allah's feeling that day. Not with the God of the Bible. I read something that really upset me this afternoon. Perhaps you saw it. It was on WorldNet Daily, and it was reported that this um, homosexual activist is decrying God as the greatest bigot of all history. I thought, "Wow, boy, Scripture has come true." You know, when they are reviling God, direct—I mean, he's speaking about God and to God saying that God needs to repent for every bad thing ever done against homosexuals across 4,000 years. Wow. Really? Do you know what this man misunderstands? That God doesn't want to judge man. He wants to save man. He died to save us. He wants to fill us. And that's, that's the, the, the wonder here. And what Eliphaz is missing. He's looking at God as, as distant and aloof and judgmental. And Eliphaz is joining God there, by the way, being judgmental toward Job. But Peter writes, 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That is the attitude to which we're called as Christians. Not slumping around feeling bad because we're such filthy sinners. Hey, yeah, without Jesus, that's the state of our lives. But because of Jesus, we're washed, we're clean. We are a royal priesthood. And we're not taking pride in ourselves for that. We're taking pride in Jesus Christ because of what He did to bring us into that place. I think there's a great word picture for this, or story picture. It actually happened. We read about this back in Judges chapter 7. You remember Gideon? And the whole story of Gideon and his army and how they went up against the Midianites. 300 men in the army of Gideon against 135,000 Midianites. And how did they do it? What were their weapons? It's a great story. God said, i got three things for you. Jars, and torches. Jars torches, and trumpets. Now go fight. <laughs> what? Jars, torches, trumpets. And trumpets, and what they were supposed to do is take the torches lit and put them inside these jars, these clay pitchers. And then they all amassed. They broke into three companies of a hundred each, hundred men companies, up against one hundred thirty-five thousand. They're all encamped out there, the Midianites. And they put these lit torches inside the jars. And at the signal of Gideon, they were supposed to blow the trumpets and cry out, "The sword of the Lord and of Gideon!" And then they break the pitchers and hold out the light. And the Midianites freaked out and killed each other. And that's how God won that battle. It is a, an amazing story, the creativity of our Father. But think about this. We have these treasures in jars of clay. How do you get the light out of the treasure? How do you get the treasure out of the jar, the light of, of the gospel of Jesus to shine? Well, in Gideon's story, the pictures had to be broken. And so we, when we enter into seasons of sorrow and pain and brokenness, are more able in those seasons to shine the light of Jesus Christ than when everything is going great. I I think about Denise, when, when she had had her horse accident, and how the light of Jesus, and I know this is embarrassing for you, so just keep looking down and don't look up here. <laughs> But how the, the light of Jesus shone out of her. You know, Dave and Denise have the, the, the tree company there and lawn company out of their home, and all the workmen walking in and out of there. Dave, you know this people saw how she handled this, this tragedy, this pain, this horrible circumstance with faith in Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what, that was a bright shining of the glory of God. In her sorrow in her difficult circumstance. Well, Eliphaz doesn't get that at all. We get the light out oftentimes when we are in that place of being broken. When the jar of clay is, is perplexed. We're crushed. We're not in despair, Paul says. He says we're afflicted in every way, Second Corinthians four eight, But not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. How is the life of Jesus manifested in me? When I'm too weak to do it myself. When I could not function otherwise, the light shines all the more brightly. People see that in me. And they say, now that is a God I want to know. Rick's a mess, but boy, look at Jesus. That's where I want to be. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Eliphaz is going on again. Verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, Call now! Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you Turn. For anger slays the foolish man and jealousy kills the simple. I have seen the foolish taking root and I cursed his abode immediately (laughs) because I'm a righteous dude, Eliphaz is saying. He's pointing out how he's observed and seen all these things. He is is judging and now after being observational, mystical, and judgmental, Eliphaz gets mathematical. Watch this, verse 4 talking about the foolish and he says in verse 4 his sons are far from safety they are even oppressed or literally crushed in the gate and there is no deliverer that, that's breathtaking that's amazing that he would say that what did, what did Eliphaz just say? he says the foolish man's sons are crushed in the gate what had happened to Job's children? they were crushed in the gate Eliphaz is saying Job, you're the man I'm talking about this all came on you because of what you did. Because you blew it somehow, your children. Now, can you, can you even imagine walking up to someone who has lost a son or daughter and blaming them for it? That's what Eliphaz is doing. Incredible. Verse 5. He's talked about the kids now. He talks about the crops. His harvest... The hungry devour and take it to a place of thorns and the schemer is eager for their wealth. So now he's talking about someone who's lost all their crops. What had happened to Job? He lost all his crops. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For a man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards, which sounds poetic, but it's really pretty stupid. (laughs) Verse 8, As for me, I would seek God. And I would place my cause before God. Who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Okay, there's a truth. That's right, he does. Who gives the rain on the earth and sends water on the fields so that he sets the high on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. This is all true. Okay, good. Eliphaz, you're speaking some truth finally. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot obtain success. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness And the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. By day they meet with darkness, and grope at noon as in the night. But he saves the sword of their mouth, and the poor from the hand of the mighty. So the helpless has hope, and the unrighteousness must shut its mouth. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty." Now we'll get to the mathematical in just a second. said he gets mathematical. I'll show you that. But what's interesting in these few verses is Solomon alludes to that last verse in the Proverbs. In fact, I think Solomon probably has read Job and, and is somewhat quoting that. He says in Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Paul, or the Hebrew writer, who I think was Paul, quotes Eliphaz almost directly. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten or you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So we have two other places in Scripture now where Eliphaz is either quoted or at least implied. What Eliphaz says is repeated. As truth, as sound biblical doctrine. So so you're saying Eliphaz is right? What I'm saying is his words are right, but they are misapplied to Job. What he's saying is true, but there's a great misapplication, a mishandling, if you will, of the word of truth. And Eliphaz here is a picture for us of, of that person of faith, a Christian who while believing in God, misuses the Word of God. Now again, I know that none of you have ever done this, nor do you know anybody who's ever in in the name of Christ mishandled the Word. But that's what Eliphaz is doing. He's intending to do well. He wants to help Job. But he is mishandling the Word of Truth. He's not speaking it in the right context. He's accurate, but he's not applying it right. And so Paul says to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 The word of truth, which is a sword, handle it accurately, because if you handle it poorly, you might cut someone up. Which is exactly what we see Eliphaz doing. Now here's where he gets mathematical. Watch this, verse 18. For he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds, and his hands also heal. Now that's true too. The Lord does. We know He does this very thing with Israel. Verse 19. Then He says, in true Hebrew poetic form, He says, From six troubles He will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. And then He gets mathematical. He, he describes here seven things that define an evil person or, or an evil per, uh, a good person would be saved from. In famine, number one, he will redeem you from death. And in war, number two, from the power of the sword. You will be hidden, number three, from the scourge of the tongue, or gossip. And you will not be afraid, number four, of violence when it comes. You'll laugh at violence and famine. You will not be afraid, number five, of wild beasts. For you will be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent, number 6, is secure. For you will visit your abode and fear no loss. He says in verse 25, You will know also that, number 7, your descendants will be many, and your offspring as the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor like the stacking of grain in its season. Behold this, we have investigated it, and so it is. Hear it, and know it for yourself. And then Eliphaz sits down. There it is, Job. (laughs) You see, if you're right, you will be protected from all these things I just listed. And that's your problem, Job. You weren't protected from all these things I just listed, so clearly, you're in the wrong. And this is Eliphaz's take on the situation. You did something wrong, Job. You're being punished here. Better go to God and figure out what you did, how you sinned. He suggests that Job is wrong seven out of seven times here. And in every situation, because he wasn't protected in these seven areas, that Job is just simply wrong. Well, Job in chapter 6, and we won't get there tonight, will give his rebuttal as we come back to our study next week. Before we pray, I want to leave you with one thought. What was the primary problem with this first speech of Eliphaz? What is what is the primary issue? We were on Monday down in Bellevue, Cheryl and I and uh, and the kids. And we had David in the at Bellevue Square in the mall there, and we went up to the play area, which is pretty cool. David was having a great time, he was playing on this big slide, he runs around, gets up the slide down, and and I'm there with David and we're playing. And this precocious little, I don't even know how old she was, maybe four, three or four year old girl, absolutely adorable, you know, dressed to the nines, a Bellevue girl, if I've ever seen one, and she comes up to me, and the first thing, she looks at me and looks at David, and looks at me, looks at David, and I'm just waiting, what what is she going to say here? And she goes, are you his au pair? (laughs) you are from Bellevue, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm, I'm his daddy. And she goes, oh, he's adopted. And I, said, I said, yes, he's adopted. And she said, yeah, my uncle was adopted, but he did a bad thing. He ate his mom's prize-winning rabbit. And I'm looking at her, and she goes, it was chocolate, but I like vanilla better and I sat there and she, she just continued on this, this weird little I don't even know where she was going I have no idea what she was talking about I'm like two or three minutes into it just going and Cheryl's over on the side sitting there laughing her head off and I'm you know I can't get away from this conversation I gotta go play with my yeah, oh yeah uh huh and she just <laughs> you know what Paul says He says in Ephesians chapter 4, we are no longer to be children. And he's not talking about the wonder of childhood or the joy of childhood or the trusting nature of kids. He's talking about kids who just blah, 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 and don't have a clue what they're even talking about. We are not to be that way, tossed here and there by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, by chocolate rabbits. I mean, the whole thing, she's just going off, you know. And and I was thinking about it this week, that, that so often when we get into a situation where we have a friend or a loved one who's suffering, that we're just like that little girl. We just start to spout off at the mouth because we're trying to fill the silence. And we're trying to say what we think will help, and we just make it worse. And and so, again, a lot of times people just won't even go sit with someone who's hurting because they don't know what to say and they don't want to say the wrong thing, so they're just going to withdraw and stand back from it. And Paul, in that same passage, says, listen, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And you know what we get wrong about that verse? We say, okay, speaking the truth in love, so it's loving to be harsh. No, that's not what he said. It's loving to speak the truth, even if it's painful for them. I'm going to love them right through that. I'm going to hurt them and love them hurting them at the same time. No, that's not what he means. To speak the truth in love, it means getting... And this is, here's the problem with, with this first speech of Eliphaz. The further in he gets, the more he forgets about Job's pain. He's not thinking. He just wants to be Right? He's trying to help Job logically see and of course Eliphaz is wrong along the way but he's just trying to help Job work this out. We're going to fix this for you. You're the problem. (laughs) When someone's in pain it is not the time for us to make doctrinal statements. It's not time for us to stand on the rightness or the wrongness of their suffering. And yet in the church we so quickly do that someone's in pain and we want to find out the sin nature or the sin reason that caused it so that we can go and tell them here's how you need to repent or here's how you can fix this and it's not speaking the truth in love Eliphaz responds to Job's words that Job is speaking out of his grief instead of recognizing Job's wounds he's he's arguing against what he's heard from the mouth of Job instead of trying to hear what's in the heart of Job and if you go back and you read, and we won't do it, but if you read Job's lament, this is a man who is just wrung out in pain. He's crying out. He even knows he's speaking foolishly. There's indication of that. But he's hurting, and so he's just uh, uh, saying all these things—some nonsensical, some just words that aren't aren't accurate. He's, he's, but he's in pain. And when another person is suffering is the wrong time for us to drive home their mistakes, their sins, and their failures. Even if it was blatant sin that caused them pain in the first place. Catch that. Even if they deserve the pain that they're in, it's not our place to point that out. We are to speak the truth in love. When someone's hurting, it is time to apply the ointment of grace. And that's what Eliphaz misses. Does he love Job? Yes. Yes. He came all the way from, where, from Teman all the way to where Job is because he loves him. He cares about him. He has been seven days sitting with him. Why? Because he loves him. And so now when Job speaks in his grief and pours out and says some things that are not accurate, instead of just saying, Job's hurting here. We just need to give him grace. Eliphaz goes on this diatribe of how you were wrong in this. And instead of helping Job feel better, he drives the nail deeper until Job is in worse pain thanks to the words of this man. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When someone's hurting, regardless of the reason, that is when we apply grace, not judgment. We see this over and over with Jesus, don't we? Isn't that how He treated every single person? An unclean woman bleeding for 12 years grabs the hem of his robe and he says, Daughter. Or or another a man, a man is leprous and untouched for years and comes and says Jesus if you're willing you can make me clean and the Bible says and I love this Jesus touched him and then said I'm willing you're clean he didn't say I'm willing you're clean okay now it's safe he made contact because that's what the man needed desperately even almost you could say more than the healing the man needed someone to touch him because no one would. The Samaritan woman is alone. She's impoverished. She's at the well there at high noon. And Jesus speaks the truth, but He does it in love. Why don't you go call your husband and let's, and let's talk a little bit. Well, I, I'm i not married. Well, that's... Yeah, you're right. You're not. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is, is not your husband, is he? And clearly she doesn't feel judged because she says... Are you a (laughs) prophet? How do you know that? He says it in such a way that it applies grace to this woman's life. Even in the sin. He could have said, you're right, you're not married. Five failed marriages, look where you are now. You're living with a guy, sinner, filthy. No. No, he knows the pain. And so he applies grace. The woman caught in the act of adultery. And what does Jesus say? Is there no one to condemn you? well, then I won't condemn you either. Go your way, and, and by the way, don't, don't sin anymore. The application of grace. And, and what was the last miracle of Jesus before He went to the cross? What was the last thing Jesus did? The nat, last supernatural event before He went to the cross? The the he healed year. the ear of Malchus. The servant of His archenemy at this point, the high priest, is there. You remember, Peter lops off the ear. All four Gospels talk about this specific instance. All four Gospels share this story. The verses I think are yeah, they're all listed up there if you want to look it up. And Jesus sees Peter lop off the ear. And even in that moment of fierceness and attack and threat, I love it. He picks the ear up off the ground. Ooh. <laughs> And he puts it back on the guy's head, healed. Jesus supplies grace in the moment of his pain. He says to Peter, put away your sword. Another way you could say that is accurately handle the word. Accurately handle the sword. That was inaccurate, Peter. That was a misuse of the of the sword. So don't you don't misuse the sword. And in a time of pain and sorrow and suffering and tragedy. It is not the time to be swinging a sword like Peter was and apply grace. Gang, we won't win over the hurting human soul by swinging swords and applying judgment. We apply grace. So where does that leave us? Well, if you've suffered, if you're suffering now, or when suffering comes, and it will, by faith in Jesus Christ, you can still say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, Second Corinthians one three, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Best thing you can do when a friend or loved one is hurting when they're suffering, even if they've brought it on themselves, is apply grace. Father, we need to learn this. I am terrible at this. Father, my tendency is to look for the source of the wrong and correct it. Father, we need to learn to let you do that. And for our part, we need to apply grace. And I pray for each of us here tonight and I pray for our fellowship that You will make us more sensitive, more loving, more caring, and more immediate in responding with love than in responding with judgment. Show us our part in this, Father. If You need to break us so that we will be more graceful, then we pray that You do so. But Father, in all things, help us to be like Jesus.